If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 1. We'll read our scripture for the day. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for, ye for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and everything and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Thank you, uh, brother. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to begin by offering a uh, sincere and humble thank you uh, to all of y'all that have um, stuck with us through this time of transition. Some of y'all had no choice, but uh, talking about my my family and my children. But um, I know that we've changed a few things. And I know that a lot of these changes haven't uh, necessarily been easy. They haven't been easy for us either. Um, I know that church uh, probably feels a little bit different now. 
Uh, I hope that y'all have found at least some of these changes beneficial. Um, that that's the reason why we've made them. Um, it's been our prayer that uh, any changes that we make that that would be something that God would use to be a help uh, to the folks in our congregation and and, and um, the folks who are viewing over the live stream. Um, and it's my hope that over the next uh, several weeks that I can offer some further explanation uh, for some of these changes that we've made to show y'all that we're not making them simply because we prefer our worship services uh, this way. Now, we do prefer our worship services this way, but our preferences are only justified if they're firmly anchored in God's Word. So uh, let me say that again. Any changes that we make and anything that we add to or take away from our worship services needs to be done out of faithfulness to the Scriptures. I'd also like to encourage y'all again to please reach out to us if you're having any uh, doubts or if you have any concerns about anything that's happening here. Um, this is your church too. Uh, and you have a right to a say in the direction we're going. You know, we can have conversations. Um, and I hope all of you feel free uh, to approach us with, with any concerns. Um, but no matter what uh, those concerns or doubts might be, uh, we, we have to all be sure and convinced that we're always seeking the path of faithfulness to our Lord. <clears throat> that has to be our reason for what we do here. That, that has to be where everything is anchored on. Um, it has to be anchored in the Word. Are, are we being faithful to the Word of God? That has to be the primary concern. And I hope you all know that this is truly uh, Trey and Jason and I. This is, this is our desire. Uh, we, we want to be faithful. And we genuinely believe um, that the steps we are taking are steps of faithfulness. Um, I hope you all will forgive me if I get hoarse up here <clears throat> and clear my throat. I've had some allergy stuff. I don't know. But uh, if you remember back to that Sunday in January where Jason and Trey and I, um, we sat up here and we tried to give you all some idea of the direction that we were going to be headed in. I was supposed to be third in line to preach. Um, beginning with Trey and then uh, Jason. But uh, Jason and I switched due to some traveling that he'll be doing uh, uh, towards the end of the month, um, as he mentioned a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, but if you recall, I was going to be preaching on the eldership, which I still intend to do, uh, but the Lord has prompted me to, to expand that uh, just a little bit. You see... God's establishment of the eldership model as the means by which he shepherds his church is part of a broader truth about him and about the way that he's created. Thank you, brother. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, and about the way that he's created and is sustaining not just his church, but all of creation. Uh, we worship and serve a God who ordains. Um. He decrees. He sets things into place. 
He uses patterns, types, and shadows. He establishes authorities. He appoints elders, prophets, apostles, priests, and kings. He gives law. He writes books. Uh, he's organized. And he's been at work since before the beginning, designing, planning, building, and ordering reality. Um, he's a God of order. Our God is a God of order. Everything he does, everything he commands us to do is logical and calculated and is geared towards the perfect accomplishment of all of his purposes. And he's a God of order. And he has ordered his creation in a very specific and intentional way. And he does nothing haphazardly or on a whim. He's not impulsive. He's not reckless. He leaves nothing to chance. And I'll be pointing out again and again over the coming weeks uh, that because the modern church desperately needs to understand this, that God uh, does not ask for our input in any of this. He doesn't leave it to us to decide how his creation or his church should function. He didn't ask for our opinions or our preferences. And praise God for that. Uh, he is the all-wise one. He is the all-knowing one. He is the only truly good being. We can't even manage our own lives apart from his grace, uh, much less a universe. Right? We're naturally inclined uh, to screw things up, aren't we? I mean, imagine what a mess we would make if reality was based on our desires and preferences. Um, or maybe you don't have to imagine. Uh, you can look around and see what happens to the world when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Um, thank God that he calls the shots and him alone. He simply asks us to trust him in all of it. And I'd like to encourage us all to do just that. So he's a God of order. Now, he didn't just decide to be that way. Uh, he didn't roll out of bed in the morning and think, uh, you know, I think anarchy and chaos uh, probably isn't the way to go here. So I think it'd be best to maybe use some order, you know, set some boundaries when I create the universe. Uh, let me see if I can come up with some rules. You know, that's, that's not the way that it works. Now, God is not a God who simply likes order or who uh, is orderly just because he thinks that it's the best way. Um, he doesn't just use it as a tool. It's his nature. Peace and harmony and order are good because that's who he is. Uh, these things flow out of him. He is by nature logical, systematic, and intentional. Uh, it's not just the best way, but it's the essential way because it is his way. There's no other way that works. Chaos and anarchy are opposed to who he is. Therefore, they are destructive. Um, if God is good and God is orderly, then order is good. And chaos and disorder are evil. We find this concept laid out for us plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles with me if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, this chapter is part of a series of chapters, uh, which began in, in chapter 11, where Paul is instructing the Corinthian church um, specifically on how they should conduct themselves during their worship gatherings. The statements that we'll look at here come uh, towards the end of the chapter, 
on the heels of a thorough and stern rebuke of the Corinthian church's worship practices. Um, Paul tells them that they need to keep the gift of tongues in its proper place. Uh, and he takes pains to say that there is rarely a place for that gift in public worship. And he then goes on to elevate the gift of prophecy as being more useful uh, for encouraging and edifying the saints than all the other gifts. Now, obviously, this chapter raises all sorts of questions uh, and controversies about spiritual gifts, which we are bound to get into sooner or later, uh, perhaps even in the coming weeks. I'm not making any promises about that. Uh, but now is, is not the time. I've brought us here to point out some statements that Paul makes regarding the way that prophecy uh, should be used in the church and how those statements relate to our theme. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, in verses 30 and 31, he says that if two or more people feel that they have a message from the Lord, then they shouldn't talk over each other. Uh, he says that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, basically saying that people are able to and should control themselves when it comes to the use of their gifts. He's saying, uh, look, give the other guy his say and hold your tongue until he's done. And then in verse 33, he says this. I think we have that. There we go. Uh, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So he's a God of peace. Uh, this verse contrasts peace with confusion. And now the word translated confusion here is translated as disorder in many other uh, Bible versions. So say he's not a God of uh, disorder, but of peace. And that's also a good and accurate translation. Um, confusion and disorder are basically uh, synonyms. After all, what is confusion? Um, bewilderment, lack of understanding, not knowing what's going on, uh, what to do or what comes next. So when you walk into a church building and you see a bunch of people hollering all at once, uh, making strange sounds, pushing each other down, rolling around on the floor, uh, running up and down the aisles and jumping on the pews, uh, waving flags around, or worse, waving rattlesnakes around. Uh, what is that? Right? Would you be confused if you saw that? Um, does that seem disorderly? To you, Paul says earlier in this chapter, in verse 23, that if everyone were to be speaking in tongues in a service and some unbeliever were to come in and see it, then they would think that those folks had gone insane. Um, like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I've wandered into a nut house. Um, Paul says that. So, scripture says that our God isn't like that, and so his people shouldn't be like that either. Uh, our God is a God of peace, a God of order. Right? And so what is peace? Peace is order. Have you ever heard the word uh, copacetic? Have you ever heard that word? Um, everything is copacetic in God. Right? It's all good. Everything is working together in harmony. Everything is right with the world. Everything is peaceful. Everything is in order. Um, so the peace spoken of here, uh, the God of peace is the opposite of confusion and it's the opposite of disorder. So our God is a God of peace. 
A few verses down, Paul finishes up his lecture here, uh, the last verse of the chapter, verse 40. And he says, um, we have that up here? He says, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Why? Uh, because that's how we can best represent God. It's in line with his character. It's a reflection of who he is. So we'll, uh, we'll come back to this chapter again, I'm sure, in the weeks to come. Uh, but this morning and for the next Sunday as well, I'd like to emphasize God's orderliness by looking at his creation. His order and creation. Uh, so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And as we walk through, we're going to kind of pull stuff out, right? So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. We'll stop right there. We didn't get very far. Um, but something has to be said here because this is one of the most important concepts in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God. And God created everything. So uh, one interesting thing about the beginning is that this was the first beginning. There was never any beginning before the beginning spoken of here in this first verse of Scripture. Uh, there have been many since. You and I all had a beginning. Every life does. Um, this nation we live in had a beginning. And this church, immersed church, uh, had a beginning back in 2007. Our worship service this morning had a beginning. But nothing before the beginning spoken of here had ever begun before. Now, because the only thing that pre-existed the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is what? Is God. Uh, and God has no beginning. But even before the beginning, there was order. Right? There's order in the Godhead. Uh, God himself is organized in his inner relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always functioned with perfect peace and harmony within himself. Um, there's always perfect cooperation and agreement within the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, to use God's redemption of his elect people, for example, and Trey spoke about this uh, some several weeks ago. So the Father chooses a people for himself, and then he gives them to the Son. And the Son, in perfect obedience to the Father, comes down and carries out all of the work required to accomplish uh, this redemption uh, for his people, living in perfect obedience and dying a perfect sacrificial death for those given him by the Father. And the Spirit applies that sacrifice, uh, that atonement, to those same elect people. Right? He gives them new hearts and works within them for sanctification, uh, working to make them more like Christ. So here we see perfect uh, Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. God made an, an eternal covenant within himself to accomplish our redemption. And the redemption of the whole world, as, as Jason mentioned uh, last Sunday. So this is the nature of the Godhead. Perfect agreement. Um, perfect fulfillment of that covenant. And it has been, and it will be for all eternity. Again, there's perfect peace, harmony, love, and order within the triune God. 
Um, so verse two, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Uh, the earth was formless and void. So God had made something out of nothing. He brought forth matter, energy, and time, uh, not from air because uh, air is something. Right? Air itself is, is made up of matter and energy. And he didn't bring it forth from himself. What I mean is he didn't take any of his own substance and create everything out of it. Uh, God's not made of any substance. Um, scripture says that he's spirit. So he isn't made of matter or energy. Uh, he may not really be made of anything. Uh, because for him to be made of something, it would imply that he would have had to have been made. Um, he doesn't need to exist physically. He created physical existence. Though he does manifest himself physically. And the primary example of this is in the God-man Jesus Christ, of course. Um, but God is utterly separate from his creation, even though he exists through all aspects of it. Uh, so I'm going to stop here, right? Because I'm talking about things that I don't understand. Uh, and I'm afraid someone's going to start asking me questions. But um, I'm, I'm talking about things that, that nobody really understands, that nobody can fully explain. Um, no one can possibly understand these things. Right, But we do know that this is the testimony of the Scriptures, and that we can trust God in that. So he, he had brought all the building blocks of creation into existence from nothing, and it was all there. All the necessary atoms and molecules, all the ingredients, uh, but it was without form and void. He had not yet begun to put it in order. And the Holy Spirit of God is also said to be present here at the moment of creation, moving over the deep. Um, the, the Father of all things is creating all things alongside the Holy Spirit. And so we've just established that there's perfect harmony within the Trinity, um, that they work together in all things. So what about the Son? Where, where is He during this moment of creation? So we can look at John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> it tells us where the Son was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Christ was right there at the beginning. Um, and this verse actually echoes the first verse of Genesis. Right. In the beginning was God, and he created everything. In the beginning, the word was with God. And, and God speaks, and things begin to exist. He does all his creation work by the power of his word. And Christ is referred to here as what? As the word. God has created all things through this word, through Christ. Uh, there are many scriptures that say that the Father carried out his creation work through the Son. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, all three persons of God, all performing their roles again in perfect order and harmony, all working exactly according to God's plan, all building uh, exactly according to his blueprint. 
And then in verse 3, uh, God begins to bring order to his formless and void creations. Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Uh, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Uh, so God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below uh, the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. Now, uh, this is not heaven the way that we're accustomed to think of heaven, right? The place where God dwells with the angels and the saints who passed on. Um, there are actually uh, three heavens, according to Scripture. Uh, the heaven spoken of here is the first heaven, right? It's our atmosphere or uh, the sky. Right? The second heaven is what we would call outer space. And the third heaven is the heaven where God dwells. Um, so God created day and night, and then he created the sky. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Uh, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So here he, he gathers up the seas. And he confines them to their place. He put them exactly where he wants them. Uh, in Job uh, chapter 38, verses 10 and 11, he says that he placed a boundary for them. And he said to them, hear your proud waves stop. And in Jeremiah 5.22, he says that even though the waves roar and toss, they can't go past the boundaries that he set for them. Um, they have their place in God's order as does the land which was revealed when the seas were gathered together. So he's shaping in, uh, the landscape exactly according to his blueprint. And then he's, he's established the 24-hour cycle of day and night, uh, the skies, the seas, and the land, and it was all good. And so let's, let's notice that. Every time he creates some new thing, he takes a step back and looks it over and says that it is good. So what does that mean? Right when God says something is good, um, it's perfect. It's exactly what He wants it to be. Right? It's in order according to His plan. Um, and notice also that there's a, a, a very orderly and systematic structure, um, even just to the narrative here in Genesis 1, uh, in the way that it's written. Right? So uh, first, the scene is set in verses 1 and 2, uh, and then th th these patterns begin in verse 3. Um, the work of the day always begins with, then God said, and ends with, and there was evening and there was morning, uh, and then he numbers the day. And there's also a, a remarkable parallelism, right, uh, here in these six days. Um, so if you split them in half, uh, three and three, um, the first and the fourth day both deal with the bringing of light to the earth. And the second and the fifth day are both concerned with the ocean and the sky. 
Uh, and then the third and the sixth day uh, deal with the land and its inhabitants. Right. So he has these things split up and divided up and, and, and ordered in a very specific way. Um, so God's, God's mind is poetry. God, God's mind is mathematics. His mind is storytelling. Um, these patterns of narrative, parallelism, and structures of ideas, uh, God uses these things all throughout Scripture. Right? He uses them in individual verses and in longer passages like this one and throughout whole books. And at the largest level, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, we see patterns repeated and structure and scaffolding used to carry forth uh, the profound truths of God. Uh, the word is amazing. Right, so verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Okay, so God made the plants. He engineered the flower, fruit, seed, uh, reproductive cycle. He designed the carbon dioxide to oxygen respiration of these plants to act in perfect harmony with the oxygen to carbon dioxide respiration of most animals, right? So plants breathe in CO2 and breathe out oxygen. Animals breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2. Uh, plants also function as food and shade for all creatures. They were made to be useful. They enrich existence in countless ways. Uh, medicine, erosion protection, building materials, paper, and many of them are also objects of, of great beauty for us to enjoy. Right, like the trees and the flowers. So he's created the first half of this wonderful uh, symbiotic relationship between the two major kingdoms of living organisms uh, that he put on his green earth between plants and, 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 and animals. And in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. Um, so he creates the sun, moon, and stars to mark the day and the night. You may have noticed that up to this point in the narrative, we've had light on earth uh, without these great lights to give it. So there's been a lot of discussion in the past about how exactly this has worked. Um, and reading through some commentary for these verses, I found something that Matthew Henry uh, who's one of the best known and respected Bible commentators uh, of all history. Um, something that he said about this, and it works very well for our, uh, our subject this morning. So he writes, The command given concerning them 
let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. Uh, God had said, let there be light. And there was light. But this was, as it were, a chaos of light, scattered and confused. And now it was collected and modeled and made into several luminaries and so rendered both more glorious and more serviceable. God is the God of order and not of confusion. It's 1 Corinthians 14 again. And as he is light, so he is the father and former of lights. Right, so uh, God had prior to this, he'd shown light upon the world, but this light was scattered and, and, and diffused. Um, and here he gives it order. Uh, he, he concentrates it into beautiful heavenly bodies, into the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, and all of these bodies are for signs, seasons, days, and years. There are few elements of creation uh, that portray the orderliness and the absolute genius and majesty of the mind of God, like the great celestial clock of the heavens. Right, the the unfathomable uh, vastness of space, its beauty, intensity, mystery, uh, and the element of danger and uncertainty that accompanies our exploration of it. Um, the efficiency and order in this heavenly host. All of this reflects the nature of our great God. Uh, Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 and 2 says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens tell of the glory of God. And they declare to us that they uh, and all of creation are his handiwork. All these heavenly bodies are arranged perfectly in relation to the earth um, so that they provide maximum benefit to us. If we were any closer to the sun, life on earth would burn up any further away uh, and our world would be a frozen wasteland. The distance from the earth to the moon uh, and the precision of their rotations and orbits guarantees that the pull of the moon's gravity will keep the Earth's uh, rotation stable on its axis. Right, So the Earth spins on an axis like a top. Um, and if it weren't for the moon, the Earth would wobble as it spins. Right, Same way a top wobbles when it's slowing down. And if the Earth were to wobble as it was rotating, uh, we would have abrupt and erratic changes in climate creating complete instability in ecosystems, um, it'd be, it would be havoc, right? And so this relationship between the earth and the moon also causes the tides, um, without which our oceans would become a stagnant cesspool, uh, unable to support the amazing varieties of life that inhabit them. Uh, so we also read here in these verses uh, that these lights are to be for signs, right? God uses them to tell us things, to show us things. So uh, one way this is done, we can know by the position of the sun uh, what time of day it is, how much time we have before dark comes. Uh, we can tell by where the constellations are what time of year it is. And by watching them, we can know how much time is left in a season, how much time is left before the cold comes. 
And there are numerous instances um, of God giving signs to people in the sky. So many prophetic signs have been given in this way, uh, signs of hope and judgment. Think of the uh, the great wandering star of Bethlehem uh, that announced the incarnation of our Savior, or of the sun being darkened and, and the sky turning black upon his death on that cross. Uh, so these are means that God has used to mark great events and to tell us something about what he's doing in the world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take just a moment here to address a way that this concept uh, is often perverted and misrepresented. Um, I don't want to get too sidetracked, uh, but I also do want to make sure that no one takes uh, this, this concept of signs in the sky, um, that no one takes it as any sort of encouragement to take part in certain uh, sinful practices. Right, so God's use of the stars as signs has nothing to do with and is in no way related to uh, the pagan practice of astrology. Right? Astrology is seeking guidance and knowledge in the stars. Uh, it comes from a belief that the stars themselves and their positions in the heavens actually cause things to happen on the earth. The most common example of astrology today is the horoscope section of the newspaper. Do they still have that? They probably have horoscope apps now. I'm sure they do. Um, horoscopes rely on the idea that the sign of the zodiac that someone is born under actually has some effect on their personality, right? And on their fate, right? So whatever stars were in the sky directly over, uh, over the earth, at the, during the month you were born, the day you were born, um, they 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 determine something about you, right? So um, obviously, uh, this is not only ridiculous, but it, it, I mean it's evil. Um, astrology is a form of divination, right? And so divination is defined in the Encyclopedia Britannica as the practice of determining the hidden significance or cause of events sometimes foretelling the future by various natural, psychological, and other techniques. Now, divination is witchcraft, right? It's inseparable from the occultic practices of the New Age religions, right? That's a central focus of New Age, um, as well as Wicca. So do a search in Scripture of the word divination. And you'll see that it is expressly forbidden by God. Uh, it's usually mentioned in the same breath as the pagan practices of drinking blood, child sacrifice, and contacting evil spirits. All of these are tied in. Uh, Isaiah chapter 47 offers some sobering words uh, for all who would practice astrology. Right, so here in, in chapter 47, Isaiah is prophesying against the pagan nation of Babylon, um, the nation whose name is used throughout Scripture as a symbol of wickedness and idolatry, and the nation uh, which, by the way, created the concept of the Zodiac and invented astrology. Um, so Isaiah 47, beginning in verse 13, says, You are wearied with your many counsels. 
Uh, this is him prophesying to the queen of Babylon. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So those who prophesy by the stars will become like burnt grass. Those who put stock in horoscopes. Uh, those who believe that a zodiac sign can give them some indication of how a person will think or act are in serious danger of judgment. So we need to take this seriously, uh, brothers and sisters. God has forbidden these practices for a reason. Um, this, this type of thing invites evil into our lives. Right? The, the stars do not determine events. God determines events. Uh, the stars do not determine personalities. God determines personalities. So we're talking this morning about the beauty of God's order. Um, be careful that you don't, don't take what is God's and ascribe it to his creation. Um, this is disordered. And scripture says that it's a wicked and, and idolatrous practice. Right, so moving on. Um, I hope that wasn't too distracting. But we're, we're discussing God's orderliness and intentionality as revealed in the heavens. So back to Genesis 1, uh, verse 14. Um, the great lights in the sky are meant for signs as well as seasons, days, and years. So I previously called these heavenly bodies a cosmic clock. Right? Uh, a cosmic clock. And that's just what they are. Um, the length of our day is determined by the Earth's rotation. How long does it take the Earth to make one complete rotation? Uh, it's just seen by us as the movement of the, the sun and the moon across the sky. Um, we count a year according to the 365.25 days uh, that it takes for the Earth to orbit around the sun. Um, our word month comes from an ancient word for moon and was originally used to refer to the time period uh, from one new moon to the next. Now, we don't, uh, we don't reckon our months in exactly this way anymore, uh, but our solar year is divided up into 12 months because there are approximately 12 lunar cycles in a year. Um, our seasons are determined by the position of the Earth relative to the sun. Right? So when our half of the Earth is closest to the sun, it's hotter. These are the summer months. Brace yourself, South Carolina, because it's coming. Right? The heat is coming. Um, when we are furthest from the sun, furthest away, we have our winter months. Um, and during these seasons, the same stars are always in the same place, the same particular places in the sky. So if you know the stars well enough, you can tell exactly what day of the year it is by where the constellations are, where the stars are in the sky. Um, we actually have computer software now that can tell us exactly where the stars were in the sky at any point in history from any observation point on Earth. So we can look back 
3,000 years ago on on uh, April what 16th. <laughs> on April 16th, 3,000 years ago, and know where exactly, uh, where, where, um, the Pleiades were, where Orion was, where, uh, Jupiter was, right? Even the planets. So, um, and we can do the same a thousand years from now. We can tell, uh, exactly where these stars will be. So that's how precise and consistent this system is. And because of this precision, the stars have been used for thousands of years to help people navigate their way across the Earth. Um, isn't it handy that, that Polaris, the North Star, is centered directly above the North Pole? Right? It never moves. Um, which means that you can always determine true North by looking to the North Star. Right? How, how convenient for us. Right? What a boon for those who needed to find their way around uh, before Google Maps. So these things are consistent and reliable because God designed them this way. And he's at work holding it all together, sustaining it like he does everything else. Uh, most of us don't pay that much attention to the sky anymore. Uh, now we got, we got watches and phones and calendars and TV. Um, and we really can't see them very well in many parts of the world anyway because of light pollution. Uh, but to the earliest readers of Genesis and to all peoples of antiquity uh, up until not too terribly long ago, observation of the sky was a crucial part of human existence. Uh, the heavens are indeed a glorious um, and precise and intricate clock. Right? They're a testimony to the glory and precision of our great God of order. Um, we can look at them and know that an almighty God created them. All right, so uh, Genesis 1, verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, uh, God has populated the sky, seas, and land with uh, more complex life forms. Right? He's created creatures. Um, so I always, I always find it interesting uh, when these nature documentaries on channels like uh, Discovery or National Geographic, um, when these... Uh, atheist or agnostic commentators. Uh, these are uh, proponents of materialism and, and naturalism. Uh, who, people who think that all of the wonder in our universe is a result of just mindless chance. Um, that it's all just some cosmic accident. Uh, they all will, will speak of creatures. You'll catch them saying it. Right? They use that word. Um, and the very word creature 
implies creation. Uh, and you'll also, uh, you'll, you'll often hear them use the word design in these same shows um, when speaking of the amazingly complex systems and behaviors of these creatures. Uh, I w listen for that, right? When you watch these shows, design. Designed by who? Right? Uh, how does design work in that worldview? Um, can, can random chemical reactions design anything? Uh, no. Um, design is, is not an accident. Design is never an accident. Design by definition, uh, implies planning. Um, only a mind can plan. And only a mind of perfect wisdom and immense power uh, could have designed this awesome world in which we live. But uh, you see, when these these people um, who make their living examining and observing God's creation, uh, when they speak of the wonder and the beauty and the obvious intentionality and orderliness uh, in what they see, um, they see the, the complexity of bodies, right? Uh, DNA. Um, a remarkable molecule which contains and communicates all of the information needed to replicate, replicate every type of the tiny but astoundingly intricate and efficient machines that we call cells. Um, they see perfectly uh, formed organ systems all working in concert uh, so that these bodies can live and function all controlled and sustained by electrical impulses generated and channeled by the uncanny meat computers that we call brains. Um, echolocation in bats and dolphins, uh, the bodies of birds perfectly designed for flight, the amazing shape and color changing camouflage of the octopus and the cuttlefish, uh, and on and on and on. Right. And so, and, and when these people see these things, they can't avoid confessing the fact that there is a creator. It's, it's inescapable. Um, the, the creative work of God is so evident, it is embedded in our language. Uh, and it's embedded in our psyche. Uh, and scripture testifies to this in Romans chapter 1. Um, we're going to begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
these verses are speaking of unbelievers. Um, whether they be a, a follower of one of the many false religions we have to choose from today, or whether they would refer to themselves as atheists or agnostics or whatever. Um, the fact is that there is no such thing as an atheist. They don't exist. Um, Romans 1 says that everyone knows that the God of the Bible exists. Everyone. Because he has made it clear to all through what has been made. Through his creation. He's made himself evident in his creation. Uh, in the beauty and the complexity of it. In the obvious design. In the superb arrangement of its systems. In the precise placement of literally everything. Uh, again, every tiny atom is exactly where he wants it, doing exactly what he wants it to do. Um, so, so this scripture says that the wrath of God abides on all those who refuse to give God the glory for what he's done. Um, those who give the credit for his masterpiece uh, to idols, right? To, to false gods and goddesses, to animal spirits, to random chance, to the sun or the moon or the stars. Uh, and, and not because they don't know any better, right? Uh, God says that they do know better. So they're without excuse. Now, Scripture tells us uh, exactly why they refuse to acknowledge him just a couple of verses later in verse 28. It says, uh, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Uh, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. A, a, actually, a more literal way to translate this is they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. Um, they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. So he gives them over to it, um, to a depraved mind. Uh, so they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to know. Uh, they deceive themselves to avoid the implications of what it means that there is a holy, transcendent, and sovereign God over them uh, because it means they'll have to give an account of themselves and what they've done with the, the gift of life that he's given them. Right? And they have to give this account to the terrible and righteous judge of all creation. So it means that they just can't sin their way through life. Uh, doing what's right in their own eyes without eternal consequences. Right? And they desperately don't want to believe that because they love their sin and they don't want to give it up. Uh, so they embrace absurdity because it's more comforting to them. Right? Absurdity is like uh, Darwinian evolution. Uh, these, these scriptures here in Genesis 1. Uh, they all speak of God's creatures reproducing after their kind. Right? After its kind. After its kind. Um, evolution says that creatures can actually reproduce something other than their kind. Right? Evolution says that bacteria can produce fish. And fish can produce frogs. And frogs can produce iguanas. Uh, and iguanas can produce squirrels. Right? So you get where I'm going with this. Um, now, I know that those are exaggerations. Um, I'm using hyperbole there, but 
Uh, you know, nobody believes a lizard's egg hatched and a robin came out. Uh, no. They believe that a lizard's egg hatched and a part lizard, part robin uh, came out. And that enough of these part lizard, part robins uh, were hatched that they bred and somehow the ones that were more more robin-y than lizard-y uh, were better able to reproduce uh, so that the creatures became more and more robin-y and less and less lizardy, and this continued on until there were no more lizard-bird hybrids. Only birds. Uh, but the lizards were still around. Go figure. Um, so this is obviously not the way any evolutionist would describe the process, but it is exactly what they believe. Um, and it's absurd on its face. Uh, but if you if you think that example is still too much of an exaggeration, uh, then let me give you one more. Evolutionists who believe that all life on Earth came about through purely natural processes uh, believe that life came from non-life. Right? That the first living organism came from non-living things, from inorganic matter, uh, acids, and other chemicals. Um, these things were somehow uh, uh, assembled by pure and unguided chance into a living cell. A, a, a cell is not, it's not just a blob, right? Uh, a, uh, uh, DNA, mitochondria, nucleus, um, with the ability to reproduce itself, uh, with all of the incredibly complex cellular systems in place. Right, and this just something zapped some acid, and this came out. Right, it's it's absurdity, it's ridiculous. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Um, and sadly, some Christians also believe that God used the evolutionary process to create everything. And I'm I'm sorry to say, but these folks are deceived as well. Right? Evolution is not compatible with Scripture. And therefore, it's not compatible with Christianity. Um, you can't find uh, deep time, uh, billions and billions of years, in this first chapter of Genesis. Right? The word day in this chapter means day. Right? One 24-hour day. And from the standpoint of the biblical languages and the structure of this account, um, it's impossible to argue otherwise. Uh, to believe it, you have to call God a liar when he says that all living things reproduce after their kinds. Or when he says that death came into the world only after the first sin. Right? Well, evolution doesn't work without death. Uh, evolution requires billions of years of death before the first human ever came forth from its part human, part ape mother uh, to commit the first sin. Um. This this goes against all that God is. It goes against everything that we've just spoken about. Christians who believe this nonsense, uh, they have to justify their claims in one of two ways. Either they try to wedge uh, evolutionary theory and deep time into this text, try to shoehorn it in, uh, which is a twisting and a misuse of it, or they just disregard the text. Right? They They... They allegorize it away. I say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says it means. Um, 
uh, it's not a real historical account, right? So it's not a real historical account, so they don't have to believe it. Um, these these two things, these two compromises, they're they're never done out of a desire to be faithful to God and His Word. That's not why people do that. Um, they're never done because the testimony of Scripture binds our consciences and demands that we believe that we're descended from fish and monkeys. Um, it's always done out of a desire to fit in with the spirit of this world. We don't want to be thought of as crazy or or infantile and, and naive in our thinking. Right? So we, we swallow a lie and then we give testimony to this lie in order to make ourselves more acceptable uh, to the unbelieving world. We're afraid to take on the, the mantle that Christ says that we as his followers must wear. Right? The mantle of, of being called foolish by the world. Being thought of as crazy uh, for the sake of the truth. But we can't, uh, we can't compromise here, brothers and sisters. Um, the evidence from both nature and scripture point to an all-wise and an all-powerful God. They point to a sovereign God who created everything in six literal days according to his good pleasure and his purposes. Uh, and because he created it, it reflects his orderly and logical mind. Um, nothing else works. Nothing else explains it. Right, so let's, let's trust God. Um, let's be on guard uh, lest we be deceived and influenced by the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. Right, our, our enemy would like nothing better than to undermine our trust in God uh, by undermining our confidence in his holy word. He wants to take from God what is his. Um, don't, don't fall into that trap. Right? Uh, he, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to bring chaos. Um, but Christ came to bring life and peace because that's who he is by nature. So believe the Lord. Believe what he says in his word. Um, look to his magnificent and orderly creation and let it strengthen your faith. Um, we, we serve a mighty God. We serve a God of order. We serve a God who is working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, so let's, let's pray to him now. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. Father, that you are a God of peace. Lord, we thank you that, that Lord, you know exactly what you're doing. Father, and you've done everything exactly the way that you want. Father, it's all according to you and uh, your good purposes for us, that this world is ordered the way that it is, Lord. Father, that, that we're in the, the families that you've caused us to be born into, that we're around the people, Lord, that you brought into our lives. Everything, 
Uh, nothing is outside of your control. Nothing is uh, outside of your plan. And we can trust you. Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, that speaks of your intentionality, Father, that, that we can know that nothing is happening by accident. Help us to trust these things, Lord. Help us to be faithful in all things. Lord, no matter what our circumstances look like. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you will uh, bless the rest of our time this Lord's Day, Father, that we'll, that we'll consider these things, Lord, and that we'll grow in our, our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.